This podcast is sponsored by our partner, QXMD. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based medicine in clinical practice. Check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. And CALCULATE for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that is qxmd.com apps. Welcome. You're listening to Back Talk Doc, where you'll find answers to some of the most common questions about back pain and spine health. Brought to you by Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates, where providing personalized, highly skilled, and compassionate spine care has been our specialty for over 75 years. And now, it's time to understand the cause of back pain and learn about options to get you back on track. Here's your Back Talk Doc, Dr. Sanjeev Lakya. In the world of back pain, inflammation, and spine care, it really takes a team. And for those that have followed me on this podcast over the last two years, I've been really fortunate to bring in clinical care providers from multiple arenas to help us figure out what's the best thing for our spine and for our back. And today I am going to be discussing all things and everything related to compounding pharmacy, compounding options for people with pain and inflammation. And I'm having this conversation. I'm delighted to be talking to Brianna Gregory. Brianna, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Lasky. I appreciate it. It's a, a pleasure to be here chatting with you today. Awesome. Now, she's uh, calling in out of uh, Houston, Texas. Is that correct? Yes, sir. That's right. All right. And let me just introduce you to the listeners. Uh, Brianna is a California native, born and raised near Sacramento. I'll have to stop you right there, though, because I'm from Cincinnati and... Uh, you know, if you're rooting for the Rams in the Super Bowl, this could go, this could not go well for you. <laughs> we'll just, we'll table that for now. <laughs> okay. Uh, she attended the University of California, Davis, uh, where she majored in kinesiology and following graduation, competed internationally as a professional golfer until 2012. And then she decided to pursue a career in pharmacy and she earned a PharmD at Harding University and then took interest in oncology research and did a lot of research and focused on the area of genetic mutations and how they impact the treatment of female breast cancer. And she's had multiple publications in this area and really is passionate about learning new techniques and compounding pharmacy and really personalizing uh, the options for her clients and patients uh, just to help them maximize their health. And I got to know uh, Brianna, really looking at uh, several things uh, for some of my patients and even family members. And I thought it'd be a great idea today to have you on the show and talk about an area that doesn't get a lot of publicity, at least um, in tr traditional medical circles. And I think a lot of physicians aren't even aware of the options that are available. So excited to have you and uh, let's dive in today. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. One of the things I think we should start with as you know, today's topic is basically compounding pharmacy, compounding options uh, to help with back pain and inflammation is for someone who's listening and doesn't really understand what that is. I think most people can understand they get a prescription from a provider and they go to their CVS or Walgreens. How is a compounding pharmacy different from a traditional pharmacy? Yeah. 
This is a great question. And like you said, it's not one area of, of medicine that gets a whole lot of attention. And when it comes to compounding pharmacies, I think a lot of people think of independent pharmacies. So not your big box chain stores, not your CDS, not your Walgreens, but these may, these may be smaller normal pop stores, but some of the pharmacies are actually a little bit larger. And the whole point of compounding pharmacy really is to practice individualized medicine. So back in the day when we used to have apothecaries and you'd see, you know, doctors and pharmacists behind the counter mixing up medications that were customized to the patient, that's how medications were made at one point. There were not big factories that, that uh, manufactured them in mass amounts. And so compounding pharmacy is more of an individualized approach. Compounding pharmacy is um, a realm of pharmacy that offers customized prescriptions for the patient. And this might mean that their, their medication comes in a different dose than what's commercially available at the CVS and Walgreens. It might come in a different dosage form. So, you know, if that's a cream or a tablet that dissolves underneath the tongue, that the patient may require because they have certain needs. And even sometimes we'll remove a bottle some inactive ingredient that if they go to a traditional pharmacy, something that they're taking from that pharmacy might not set well with them. We all have certain environmental and chemical sensitivities that as pharmacists, we need to be aware of that. And a lot of times it requires removing those ingredients from the medication so that the patient can achieve their health and wellness goals the best way for them. And so the way that it works is that the patient will bring their prescription in and it's going to be very customized um, in a certain dose for them that fits with their chemical makeup, their biology. You know, if it is genetic differences that they have, these are all things that we take into account, as well as patient compliance. How many times a day is the patient taking medication and how do we minimize it for them so that they can get to where they need to be? So it's, it's really all about individualized and personalized medicine. Yeah, I, I first got introduced to compounding pharmacy years ago when we were looking at some options for a family member. And I had no idea that you could, for example, have a medication compounded and remove the dye mm-hmm. or lower the sugar amount. Things that people nowadays more than ever are sensitive to. And I think when I kind of put on my integrative medicine hat as a physiatrist, I think these are low-grade triggers of inflammation in the body. So it's, it's really interesting. And also the route of delivery, not everyone can just swallow pills. So the ability to take a prescription and provide it in a form that's easier for the individual to take and comply with, whether it's a liquid or topical. I think it's just really cool and underrated um, aspect of healthcare. And if I didn't mention, so you work at Physicians Preference Pharmacy and uh, we'll put a link to your website in our show notes, but you got a big team. Like I'm, I'm looking at your website and there's at least eight of you pharmacists there. And you know, this is, this is a big deal, right? I mean, it's not just a small I mean, some of the compounding pharmacies, yes, they're very small boutique, but I think what you guys have going on there is really uh, on a bigger scale. Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, I've worked for other campaigning pharmacies in the past, back in California, actually. And, you know, each compounding pharmacy has 
usually a different specialty. Um, I came from one that we actually specialized in pets, companion animals, which there's a huge market for that as well. But for what we do, our physician's preference pharmacy is um, for, for, you know, for human medicine. And one of the, the things that I really emphasize as a pharmacist, especially as a compounding pharmacist, is that there has to be consistency month to month as far as the medication product goes for these people. Because remember, you're already, you're already dealing with somebody who is sensitive. And generally, you know, weight pharmacy is not the first place people end up. It's, it's typically the last. I wish it was opposite than that. But with that being said, they show up and they're really in a world of trouble. And so they need to be sure that what they're receiving month to month is very consistent. And it takes an entire team of pharmacists and very well-trained and vetted technicians and a lot of testing processes, both internally and externally, meaning that we, you know, weigh and test everything on site before we send it out for third-party testing to be sure that what the patient is getting is, is the same every time. Because when it comes to hormones and peptides and antioxidants and things that are already naturally present in the body but that we are replenishing, these patients cannot afford to be receiving inconsistent doses. And if you don't have the right quality and, you know, the right quality processes in place, that can go awry pretty quickly. So not all compounded pharmacies are created equally. That is, that is for sure. So I'm blessed to be on a, a wonderful team where I'm at. That ties right into my next question for you. Particularly in the world of spine care, we will get alerts periodically uh, that talk about compounded medications that may have a bit of contamination and they're being recalled. Uh, you know, certainly a concern for injecting those in uh, within individuals. So for people who are considering working with a compounding pharmacist, what are some of the, I guess, good manufacturing processes, regulations? What are some of the things they should look for that signals to the individual, hey, you know what, uh, these guys have their act together, their product is clean, it's reproducible, it's safe? That's a fantastic question. I wish more people asked it. First and foremost, you should have full access to your pharmacist. If the pharmacist can't answer questions about the testing processes, when you make medications in your pharmacy, how do you test that product for consistency and for quality and for potency before it leaves your pharmacy? If your pharmacist cannot answer those questions, that's a red flag for one. And also, one distinguishing accreditation is PCAP, PCAB, that's the Pharmacy Compounding Accreditation Board. And that's an organization that actually overlooks um, compounding pharmacies that holds them to a higher standard. So that's something that you apply for, you get inspected for, and that organization comes in, inspects your pharmacy, accredits you, and says that you are following good manufacturing practices that are clean, that keep the compounder or the person making the medication safe while they're doing it because they're being exposed to high quantities of these medications on a daily basis when they're making it, but also the processes that are in place in that pharmacy to be sure that when the patient receives those compounds, that they are clean, that they are safe, that they have minimal ingredients in them, and that on a daily basis for them to use them, they'll also be safe. And then I would say lastly, the pharmacy should be transparent about 
what the results are when they send out their products for third-party testing. So, for example, if we're making capsules or tablets or creams or whichever dosage form that may be, we have testing processes in place to be sure that they meet our standards of what we expect. Now, when it comes to commercially available products that are made by large companies um, in limited amounts of doses, there is by law a variance that can occur in those medications, meaning that if the dose in the outside of the bottle says that it's one milligram, for example, it can actually legally deviate from that plus or minus 10% of that dose, which might not be the biggest deal if we're talking about, you know, one medication, but when it comes to something like, let's say thyroid, for example, or a hormone, something that we consider to be a narrow therapeutic drug where we really can't afford to have huge fluctuations of the dose of that medication, it's important that you're getting one milligram every single time. And so that's what we test for in our pharmacy. And then we have a third-party lab that we use that we send it out and then tell us, you know, did we fall within our expected range or not? Now, going back to the plus or minus 10%, that's what, that's what's allotted for in the commercially available processes. In compounding, by peak habit preservation, we're really only supposed to deviate plus or minus 5% of the expected dose. But we set our standards even more strict, plus or minus 3%. And I will tell you that, you know, it takes a lot of training of the team to be sure that that, that is consistent every time. But we can confidently say that locations do better because they're receiving their consistent product. So all that to say, you know, we could talk about these processes all day because there's so many. But everything I just told you, I would tell a patient if they called me on the phone. And I think that that's really important to be transparent about it. Okay. I, I don't know if I heard you correctly, but did you just say that medications that you pick up from the pharmacy can fluctuate by as much as 10% in terms of their potency? Yes. Plus or minus 10%. And so it's a little bit different with brands and generics, but all that to say Yes, that's a huge deviation. As much as think about twenty percent, if one month they receive it on the low end, you know, and the next month they receive it on the high end. Right. And you know, from a physician standpoint, so I'm not pharmacist, but I I also serve as a physician liaison, which means that I I manage those relationships with the physicians that use our pharmacy. At the same time, I go into their offices and I explain to them how to write these translated medications customized for the patient because there's no quote-unquote formula out there to do it. But what I do know is that, you know, if the patient's not feeling well, they look up to, you know, you as physicians and prescribers very, very highly. They take your word for what it is and they hold you in very high regard. And what I know is that if, you know, you prescribe something to your patient and you can't figure out what's going on with them, it might not be that they're not compliant with their medication. It might be that their medication isn't consistent. And so, you know, for better outcomes and better patient prescriber relationships, it's good to work with a pharmacy that can provide you that consistency. Because again, it's, it's going to come back to the prescriber and the patient might think that, that the reason that they're not performing well or getting to meet their goals is because of something that the prescriber is doing. So that's why 
a pharmacy, particularly a company pharmacy, should have a good relationship with the prescriber and the prescriber's office, and of course the patient, including that patient prescriber pharmacist triad. But the pain planning pharmacy actually serves as an extension of the pharmacy itself, and that's where that relationship becomes important, right? But, but you know, to your point, if there's so much of a gap that can occur with the potency of the medications. But this needs to be communicated between all parties of, of the consistency and the importance of the consistency of the medication month after month. Well, we could probably talk all day on this, but I'm going to let it go other than say that's really good information and something to consider. Yeah. Um, the other question I have before we really get into what I think people want to hear about today uh, would be, can you describe for individuals kind of the state of the union with regards to Compounding pharmacists being able to serve patients out of state. Yes. So there is some continuity from state to state as far as the, the pharmacy licensure goes. There, of course, is a state board of pharmacy for all of our 50 states. And for a pharmacy like our own in Texas, to be able to ship out of state, we've got to have a pharmacist license in that state. And so we have, I think, eight plus pharmacists at this point. And we all, well, not all of us, but several of us hold multiple state licensures. That being said, for us to be able to ship out of state, we've got to have a pharmacist license there to do so. Um, that requires testing, state uh, board of pharmacy testing to be sure that we can comply with their laws and rules and regulations. And when it comes to shipping out of state, we always have to abide by the strictest standards. So... You know, I came from California. California has pretty strict standards when it comes to their state board of pharmacy. No surprise, right? And so if, you know, if in Texas we're shipping out to a state like California, if their laws are more strict, we have to abide by theirs. So it requires a lot of licensure and knowledge on the pharmacist part to be sure that we're complying with each particular state board of pharmacy. And then if we're licensed, then we can ship there. Yeah, this sounds very similar just for medical licensure laws and telemedicine and things like that. You just need to be licensed in the state that you're you're looking to serve. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that. Uh, let's get into, I know you got a lot of ideas to share or just some experience to share about how you've helped people uh, throughout your career who suffer with, you know, my podcast is about spine care, back pain, pain and inflammation. I've talked about nutritional influences on the show. We've talked about injections. Um, we've covered, you know, surgery, but my understanding would be that what's unique about compounding pharmacy, one of the main kind of areas would be topical medication. So I want to get your thoughts on, on that. And then anything else you want to share about, you know, some successes that you have found. Absolutely. Yeah. You, when you were talking about nutritional, um, you know, deficiencies and something I thought about is functional medicine, which we would say that our pharmacy partners primarily with functional medicine or integrative medicine practitioners that are looking at the body as a whole. And the reason that this is important is because people don't get sick because they have a low level of pharmaceutical growth in the blood, right? They get sick because they're, it's a result of a, some sort of a deficiency or an imbalance, which causes that inflammation and that pain, you know, and maybe that shows up in the back or the neck or it manifests in an organ or something like that. So 
if we can actually focus on what the root cause of the pain and the inflammation is, then we can work backwards from where the patient is to what the root cause is, treat that, and help them come off so many pharmaceutical drugs. Because that's the point for how we're treating our patients is we want them to be on minimal medications flexible, and sometimes we need to use them. Primarily, what we focus on is replenishing what the patient is deficient in. So we may use topicals to help with pain. Um, we may be supplementing orally what the patient is deficient in, let's say hormones, for example. But one topical option that we have is LDN, which is low-dose naltrexone. And low-dose naltrexone is actually only available as a compound. Naltrexone itself is commercially available for a different use, but at very low doses, um, it's used to help mitigate pain. It's used to help with inflammation. And we can use it both orally and topically. But it's interesting that the way that it works is it binds at the same areas within the body that opiates would, so opiate drugs, as well as the endorphins that we make, those feel-good hormones. And so when LDN bonds there, it makes us feel better. It helps to mitigate that pain. It decreases inflammation. It helps to control the inflammatory process. Because with inflammation, it's like a natural process. If we fall and we scrape our knee and, you know, we get some skin and some stabbing and bruising, that's all normal. That's how the inflammation process, right? But it should stop at some point. And if it's not stopping for people and they're in a point of chronic inflammation, that's usually when they end up in a place like this where they need some sort of medication to help mitigate or control the inflammatory process. So LDN is a good option. We can make it in a topical cream, typically a 1% concentration. And what that does is it helps to control the inf inflammation locally. If we're using it in a cream, you can just apply it to the area that the patient is experiencing pain at. Or you can also put it into oral capsules or sublingual tablets, which are great for being ingested into the body, which get absorbed into systemic circulation into the blood for the patient to be able to use this, this tool to help stimulate their own immune system. So if we're able to give a patient something that is going to replenish what they're deficient in or give them something that's going to stimulate their body to do what it knows how to do on its own, we're always going to be in the best shape because we have the least number of side effects that way, and that's the goal. Okay, let me stop you right there. So LDN, and I didn't know you were going to lead with that, uh, LDN is a very interesting medication. And for those who aren't familiar with it, low dose, micro doses, when you look in the literature, uh, it's exactly what you said. It does have an immune modulating effect. Uh, we believe it does calm down some of this, what we call glial cell hyperactivity, which correlates with multiple pain conditions, fibromyalgia is one of them. I've read literature that it's used in adults and uh, even in the pediatric population for inflammatory neurologic disorders. Uh, so it's a, it's a very, very interesting option. I think the literature on it is emerging, growing, and probably trending in a positive direction. So what else comes to mind in terms of if we're trying to lower inflammation in the body? Now, it's, it sounds like nutritionally, and I would totally agree, replenishing, uh, repleting is super important. And in my experience, things such as particularly for pain uh, and neuropathy. So you're looking at B12, folate, uh, B-complex. 
magnesium has been very important for some of my patients. What's, uh, what's been your experience? Talking about the replenishment, you know, you said magnesium, um, especially particularly in Western diets, we have diets that um, deplete us or just fail to nourish us in some of the things that we need, that we can pull out the nutrients we can pull out of our food. Magnesium is a big one. Magnesium is a, you know, something that is depleted quite easily by a lot of mainstream medications that we take can deplete our bodies in magnesium. Um, we are in a high level of stress, particularly now, which strips our gut, our gastrointestinal tract of the nutrients it needs, magnesium being one of those, because it's it's imperative for tissue repair. And um, that's going to help how it helps with the muscles working correctly, which of course leads into pain and inflammation. So magnesium is a big one, very big proponent of magnesium. Vitamin C as well, which is a natural antioxidant, actually. Humans don't make our own vitamin C, which is why we need to replenish it. So it's, it's particularly important to say we recommend uh, 1,000 milligrams for every 25 pounds of body weight. So if someone weighed 100 pounds, they would take 4,000 milligrams per day. And that really helps. That's kind of considered a high dose of vitamin C as we refer to it. But um, it really helps to keep that inflammation down. Another one is vitamin D. We know that in conditions such as diabetes and heart disease, you know, even people with COVID, things like this, where everything is very inflammatory driven and there's a lot of imbalance occurring due to inflammation, that typically these people's vitamin D levels, if you draw them in the blood, are very low. They're very deficient in this. So mental health disorders, vitamin D is very low. Vitamin D is one of the things that you can give that turns people around the fastest when it comes to their mental health, their mental clarity, as well as inflammation. So I would say that but those are good ones. Um, something else that we use that's very interesting is oxytocin. And oxytocin is a, it's a natural hormone peptide that occurs in the body, but it helps us to manage stress and therefore manage inflammation and therefore manage pain. And, you know, when we're talking about Nerve responses, which play into pain, of course, throughout, you know, the whole body, but particularly in the back as well, is the, the clusters of nerves that are present in the brain is highly populated by oxytocin. There's a lot of oxytocin in our brain. People know about oxytocin. We call it the love hormone usually or the cuddle hormone. Um, it's what is you know, excreted in, in high volumes when you touch somebody or you've been intimate with somebody. But it's a feel-good thing. It does so much more than that. It helps to balance cortisol and stress within the body. And there's a lot of it in the brain. So when it comes to pain management, we can give oxytocin to replace it if someone is oxytocin deficient. But we can also give it to them to help them manage their cortisol levels, which is good for long-term chronic stress. Because if someone is constantly making high levels of cortisol, there's a lot of inflammatory damage to the body. That is very interesting. And I think for people listening, as a reminder, my goal is to bring out some of the best information out there on, on pain and, and inflammation, but it is for informational purposes only. And if you're, you're listening and you're thinking, wow, could this be for me? Definitely uh, get a consultation set up, talk with your doc, give them a call. The oxytocin, is that delivered as a nasal spray? Typically, that's how people are familiar with it. We, we do make it into a nasal spray, but we actually make it into a sublingual tablet. 
shift, which another goal of compounding, and I'm glad you brought that up, is that when it comes to compounding pharmacy, we have a lot of options as far as the, the dosage route goes. So we can either apply it topically, like I said, or they can swallow an oral capsule or a sublingual tablet. To be clear, a sublingual tablet is a tablet that dissolves under the tongue, sub meaning under lingual meaning tongue. But the thing that's special about the dosage form is it gets absorbed directly into the bloodstream, so it works very fast. Intranasal sprays also work very fast. But I might give someone a sucrose in a nasal spray versus a sublingual tablet depending on what they have going on. So if they need some help with mood management or anxiety or depression, a lot of that is stemming from what is going on in the brain, serotonin, dopamine levels, things like that. I want to give that person a needle spray. They can use it immediately when they experience that and I'm going to get almost immediate relief. If I've got someone that has pain, for example, that is, widespread all over their body, they might be more likely to be discovering the tablet because they're going to get systemic absorption into the bloodstream and that oxytocin is going to be flowing throughout their entire body and their entire body is going to be benefiting from it. So we compound both. It completely depends on that particular patient's needs. I recently did a podcast on the topic of CBD and I wanted to get your thoughts on what you have observed in your patient population, uh, if you have have any thoughts on CBD and its applications to pain. Oh, wow. Yes, I do. So, you know, I actually have zero experience with CBD prior to 2020. And in, I believe this was 2020. And then in early 2020, CBD became, pure CBD became a product that we could compound as in honey pharmacies. And within just a matter of a few months, um, it was reclassified or re-regulated by the government as far as something we could not compound anymore. And without getting into the you know logistics of all of that, we've never seen anything be ripped from the market so quickly. And it really broke my heart because when I have a new product that comes available to us, I I go 100% into it. I want to learn everything about it. I want to try it. I want to be able to tell the patients what they're going to be experiencing. And so I went, you know, just full bore on CBD, learning everything about it, educating myself about it. And we saw the most amazing results from CBD. I mean, I had patients who were coming to me that said, well, actually, this lady, I can't on the phone. She said, we haven't slept in 50 years. I said, what? We haven't slept in what? She says, 50 years, five zero. I haven't had a good night's sleep in 50 years. And I took that CBD sublingual tablet that you guys made for me, and I had my first full night's sleep. That's incredible. What I didn't know about CBD is how well it brings our body back to homeostasis. I mean, we've got things that the second you walk out your front door, you're being stimulated by all types of environmental, chemical, you know, just signals all around. The whole goal is for us to be just consistently stimulated by something all these ups and downs that we experience throughout the day, it's no wonder why we end up with balance, right? And CBD was really helping not only to calm people that were overstimulated, but to help energize people that were understimulated. And that's the thing about CBD is it's almost like a, I think of it almost like an adaptogenic as we refer to it in the supplements herb world as something that brings your body back to normal. 
It doesn't always stimulate you. It doesn't always bring you down. It helps your body find that healthy balance for you again. And so it's enormous with sleep, enormously successful with sleep, with pain, with inflammation. It's primarily how we were using it. We probably saw the most success with it in sleep, primarily. I mean, people that were using it from our phone, you know, Southern Will Tablet, where people that get a good night's sleep they never could before, which we know that sleep is so imperative to healing. So it's, it's incredible. I, you know, there are a lot of products out there. And I guess the last thing I'll say about it is if you're going to get a CBD product, be sure, or even if it's a full spectrum hemp product, which means that it has all the different cannabinoids in it, not just the CBD cannabinoid, is that with the product you can get a C of A, which is a certificate of analysis, which means that it's made by a place that um, tests the product and that it's, it's in basically, because you don't want to go to Joe Blow's CBD shop on the corner and not know what you're getting, but those are all over the place. And you don't really know what's in it. You could have a lot of trace elements in there that could be toxic to your body, and that's what you want to stay away from. You can get a reputable source of the CBD. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I I would agree with your observation, just clinically with my my patients and the feedback, because many of them just take it, and you know physicians don't even need to recommend it. it. It's just out there. But from what I've heard and what I've read in the literature, I think it's helpful, quite helpful for sleep and anxiety. Um, and then, you know, third on that realm would be pain. But I think what listeners should understand is the same physiologic system influences all of those. So, you know, the endocannabinoid system, the uh, opioids in, opioid system within the body, the hormonal axis, stress axis, like the same blood goes everywhere. One of my mentors has said before, and I think that's why in some of these areas, particularly in plant medicine, you mentioned the word adaptogen, it's really unique. You know, I think different than traditional farm pharmaceuticals, which is a, you basically take a substance, you concentrate it to maximize a singular therapeutic effect. When you're looking at some of these natural interventions, they're not as potent, but they're more diverse in how they influence our physiology. So Thank you for sharing that feedback. And really, I wasn't sure what to expect and which way we would go today. But if you're listening, I think you get a general sense that working with a compounding pharmacist is much more holistic and integrative in nature. And I think there's a tremendous place and role for that within the spectrum of healthcare. And, you know, Brianna covered everything from topicals to um, optimizing your nutrition talked about sleep. We talked about several different options. So I think that was really great. Uh, anything that we've left out that you wanted to add in before uh, I kind of let you get out of here and enjoy your weekend? <laughs> well, I think that one of the most important things is having an awareness. I like what you said, that the same blood goes everywhere, but also that everything is connected. I think that the best thing that a patient or just anybody can be for themselves is to self-educate, to be your own advocate, and to also find a team of healthcare professionals that will advocate for you and ask the questions that other people maybe haven't asked before. Understanding that everything is connected. So finding a functional medicine or an integrative medicine practitioner, meaning they're looking at your whole body, is extremely important because everything is connected. And sometimes it's the smallest connection that we find that fixes the problem. 
And sometimes it's so close that it's lacking space. And, you know, I think it's just important to have someone that's very open-minded. And so that's my encouragement to people out there is don't be afraid to ask the questions and be sure that regardless of what type of political practitioner you're working with, whether it's a physiatrist or a pharmacist, they should be able to answer your questions very transparently. And what a lot of people don't understand is the world of integrative health and functional health. And I, I myself, I'm just wrapping up my two-year fellowship uh, through University of Arizona Integrative Medicine, but it is replete with evidence. I mean, the evidence is robust for many of these evolving natural interventions, and it's just not read. Uh, so definitely uh, when you work with a provider, I think we should be held to a standard that there should be some clinical evidence, literature that supports what we're doing. Uh, but there is a whole world out there for some uh, that can be explored and can be helpful. And I know for you, uh, as I kind of close the podcast today, I know you're, you got an athletic background, but I really want to ask you in your bio, you say you love trying bizarre foods. So <laughs> tell me about that. Oh boy. Well, one thing that popped into my head is uh, when I was competing in golf, I was playing on the Asian tour. That was one of the tours I was competing on. And I remember the first time I went to Thailand and I was brought up where you don't say you don't like something, you just try it and you put it your food. But there's very few things for that reason that I don't like. And I remember I went to Thailand and they have, an ama- they have amazing food now, but they are very resourceful with their food. So, I mean, if they're cooking from a plant, they're using the whole plant. And I had some of the weirdest textures there. Some of them I couldn't necessarily stomach, but most of it was great food. And I'll try anything once, you know, um, but I've traveled so much for competitive golf that, um, you know, there's several appointments that I just, I love to submerge myself or immerse myself with the local people. And I want to try what they're trying. And I've tried a lot of cool stuff. But, um, you know, I think that's important to connect with people and to live like they live. And sometimes you like it, sometimes you don't. But at least you can say you tried it. That's awesome. It definitely expands our horizon and helps us learn other perspectives. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, we will link to the physician preference uh, rx.com in our show notes. But how can, if, if there's someone who's listening, whether they're clinical or not, how can they get a hold of you? Is that the best way to go through the website or do you have any other information you want to share with people? Yeah, so the website's a great place. Physiciansproponsrx.com is a great place. And you can, of course, call us if you want to reach me individually. You can find me on both Facebook and LinkedIn. On Facebook, I'm Brianna Gregory RPH, which is cancer pharmacist. And then on LinkedIn, I'm just Brianna Gregory. So shoot me a message. I'd love to chat with you. Um, every question is a great question. And I look forward to connecting with your audience. I appreciate it. Very good. Thank you again for your time. And uh, let's definitely stay in touch. I know you're on the cutting edge of treatments. And um, it's, it's, it's really great to share this with the listeners today. So thank you so much, uh, Brianna, for your time. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Back Talk Doc, brought to you by Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates, with offices in North and South Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Lockia and treatment options for back issues, go to backtalkdoc.com. We look forward to having you join us for more insights about back pain and spine health on the next episode of Back Talk Doc. 
Additional information is also available at carolinaneurosurgery.com.